those that, uh, that know the Butler family and have heard a little bit of our story know that we homeschooled our sons and our daughter and lived to tell the story. Our sons, we homeschooled actually all the way through high school. Our daughter is special needs, so when she got to be 13, she needed more than what we could provide at home, and so we did put her in school. But, you know, when you're with your kids that much, <clears throat> you uh, develop a few friction points. One of our friction points was physical education. So it was a great day when a martial arts instructor joined the church that I was serving at that time. Bernard Walker had taught martial arts at the Agape Center, which is a crew ministry on the south side of Chicago. When he joined our church, he offered to begin a taekwondo class. There were several of us who were homeschooling at, at the church, and we all leaped at the opportunity to enroll our kids so we wouldn't have to do the P.E. So Brian, Christopher, Derek, and Ethan all got signed up immediately. Now, gymnastics, little league, soccer, those would all come later. But, but for right now, it was taekwondo. And, and three of the four sons became black belts. Two of them got their second degree black belts. But I want to tell you a little bit about one, and that's Chris and his first black belt. Now, he had prepared long and hard for this exam. You see, he had to demonstrate mastery of every kick, every block, every punch, every technique, form, principle, and fact that he had learned from the time he started as a white belt. He was ready. We were all there to watch and to cheer him on. The test took over three hours. And in the second half of the test, he had to spar with one of the guest instructors for 15 to 20 minutes. By the time it was over, Chris was sore, tired, and sweaty. And he was a first-degree black belt. We got him home. He couldn't wait to shower. He changed, ate a simple meal, and then he passed out on the couch for three hours. We were planning to take him out to a steak dinner to celebrate. He, he never made it. He was completely exhausted. The promotion test had utterly depleted him. Now, David, the author of Psalm 23, had faced some tests that had quite a bit more at stake than just a black belt. David had shepherded his father's flock, you remember, when he was a teen. And there he had faced and killed a lion and a bear. And then while still a teen, he faced and killed Goliath. That was his first battle for King Saul. But not every battle in David's life went as cleanly as the battle with Goliath. 
A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that there was a time when David got weary on the battlefield and was almost killed. His nephew Abishai had to rescue him. And when it was all over, Israel was victorious and the Philistines were defeated. But you can bet that David, who was almost 50 at the time, felt that battle for the next week or two at least. It took a toll, even though the end result was victory. As I've read through Psalm 23, it, it sounds to me like some experience similar to that might have been going through David's mind as he penned verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Uh, David has been using the picture of a shepherd to this point, but here he changes his metaphor. The shepherd image has been replaced. Now it's a gracious host that welcomes his guest with three affirmations, and those affirmations together draw a picture of the victory the Lord provides. What I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to walk through the three affirmations and then look at what was behind the metaphor that David was using and how, that, how then that applies to us. So the first affirmation is this. The Lord celebrates us. We see it in the, in the first and last line of verse 5. You prepare a table before me. And my cup overflows. Now, most families in David's day did not eat at tables. They would lay a board or spread a cloth on the floor and then place the food on it. And then they would recline around it and eat. Wealthy families would have a table and raised couches around it. And that seems to be what David is describing here, the table is prepared. Bowls and platters are set out. Meat and fish, produce, uh, produce and breads, wonderfully prepared, delicious aromas filling the air. Interestingly, David says this is done while he was there. You prepare a table before me. Now, when we, when we have people over at the butler house, we generally have the table set and the food ready before the guests get there. We have to know you pretty well if we're going to let you watch us get things ready. Well, the same is true here. The fact that the host arranges the table in his guest's presence suggests that there is a close, strong, good friendship between the host and the guest. The language remains up close and personal. You prepare a table before me, not he prepares a table. But after all is prepared, a welcome cup is placed into the guest's hands. We'll look at that later. So the first affirmation, 
is that the Lord celebrates us. The second is this. The Lord shields us. The second line. See, he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Now, in David's metaphor, while the table is being spread, there are spectators. The ones that David has recently engaged in battle are now defeated, and they look on in frustration and humiliation as David is hailed and welcomed. That would suggest they are either prisoners of war in chains, or they have acceded, like the Japanese at the end of World War II. There's that scene with General MacArthur where they're signing the, the documents of surrender. Whoever, whatever the situation was, these enemies now look on as David is celebrated and there is nothing they can do about it. They cannot interfere in this celebration in any way. The victory is greater than just what David has accomplished. Notice that David is the guest and the enemies cannot interfere in what the host is doing. The Lord is depicted as the one who has thoroughly subdued the enemy. He's providing the shield under which David is able to feast in peace. Now, there's a third affirmation, and that is the Lord refreshes us. You anoint my head with oil. The battlefields that David would have known were battlefields under the blazing sun. If, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know it gets hot. So this anointing oil, this isn't the word that's used, for instance, when a priest or a king is ceremonially anointed. No, no. The word that David uses here describes how oil is used to comfort. You see, even if in hand-to-hand -hand combat, even if you are the victor, there are going to be abrasions and bruises, nicks and cuts. The oil is poured on his head to comfort him to soothe him. And then he's handed that welcome cup that we saw a few minutes earlier. It's filled all the way to the brim. Doesn't matter if some spills because this host has plenty and then to spare. So I want to ask you to picture this in your mind. This table sumptuously spread, the host pouring this comforting oil over David's battle-worn head, the cup in his hand, the wine spilling over the sides as David takes this refreshing sip. And all this as David's enemies 
now defeated, they look on powerlessly. This is victory. Not cheap victory gained by pushing a button thousands of miles away. No, this is sweaty, exhausting victory. David played a part in the victory, and his host, the Lord, delivered the decisive blow. I've mentioned before, there's nothing in Psalm 23 to tie it to a specific point in David's life. But as I said from the beginning of the series, these are words of one who has journeyed with the Lord through hills and valleys, through victories and setbacks. I believe David wrote this later in his life. And a a season of his life that comes to mind with this verse is when his son Absalom attempted a coup. That set in motion a series of events that lasted several months. Absalom had himself crowned as king in Hebron. Hebron was about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. So from the time that David learned that Absalom had had himself crowned, he knew he had three, maybe four hours to get everything together and get out of town or there would be a full-scale battle waged in the city of Jerusalem. Amazingly, he mobilized his entire household, all of his personal guard, his standing army, and they got out of the city before Absalom entered. But at 60 years old, this was taxing. They had to leave without making travel preparations the things that you need on a journey in the wilderness. But the Lord provided. Ziba, a former servant of King Saul, put together a caravan, and he met David with bread, bunches of fruit, wine, donkeys for the king's household to ride on. Hushai, who had been one of David's counselors, agreed to return and infiltrate Absalom's inner circle so that he could provide information to David while at the same time giving advice that would hinder Absalom. When David arrived at the city that he had chosen as his base of operations, three very wealthy friends were waiting for him. He knew nothing of their coming. They had everything needed for the crisis. They brought the tents. They brought the beds. They brought the food, the drink. They brought the bowls and the the water jugs and the vessels. They brought everything that David could possibly have needed. The Lord provided. Now, David's men urged him to stay in the city while they dealt with Absalom and his army. And even though they were greatly outnumbered, they won the day decisively. Absalom was killed. The war was over. But when David was returning home, another threat developed. An anarchist tried to exploit the moment 
and turn Israel from being a unified nation back into 12 tribes. But that too, they put down quickly. David was restored to the throne of a unified Israel. At the end of it all, amazingly few people were killed. Those who had bought into the coup or into the anarchy were repatriated under David's reign. It was victory. Sweaty. Exhausting victory. But it was the Lord who had restored David as the king of Israel. Now, there are a couple of lessons that I'd like us to look at from this. Uh, the first is, is this. Being in God's will doesn't guarantee ease, comfort, or feelings of peace. They're not guaranteed. Pastor Lutzer likes to point out the account of Jesus' disciples rowing across the lake, the wind blowing, the waves filling the boat. But Jesus had commanded them, go to the other side. They were scared to death, convinced that they were about to drown. They were clearly in the will of God. And it was clearly difficult and scary. Maybe if they had remembered who commanded them to go across the lake, they could take comfort and confidence that if Jesus commanded it, it was going to happen. They would make it. But in the midst of it all, they, probably like we, forgot. Before I came to Moody Church some 15 years ago, I had the privilege of serving on the pastoral staff at Armitage Baptist. Now, Armitage is a Southern Baptist church, and, and there I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Paige Patterson. Dr. Patterson was the architect and the driver of the plan that rescued the Southern Baptist Convention. Around the time that I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, 1978, the Southern Baptist Convention was moving away from the Orthodox Christian faith into neo-Orthodoxy and other, and other thoughts. Dr. Patterson put a plan in place that over the next three decades moved the Southern Baptist Convention from that drift back to the soundly evangelical denomination that we know today. It cost him. It cost him friends. It cost him a lot of sleep. It cost him significant stress. He was never sure what his future was going to be like. He said he went forward with the plan not because he thought it would work, but because he believed it was right. He was willing to be faithful to God. 
and leave the outcomes to the Lord. We see something similar to that in, in the life of the Apostle Paul. On his second missionary journey, Paul took Silas and they went to visit the churches that, they had, that he and Barnabas had planted on the first journey. At Derby and Lystra, they took on Timothy as a companion. And then they went on to Philippi, and God opened Lydia's heart, and she received the Lord. She was a wealthy businesswoman, and she offered her home to be the base of operations for the gospel in Philippi. A slave girl followed Paul and Silas around as they preached the gospel, essentially trying to take credit for, for Zeus or whatever deity, other deity, and Eventually, Paul was moved to cast this spirit out of her. That got him in trouble instantly with the slave's owners, who were influential people. Paul and Silas were publicly beat, thrown into prison, locked in the inner cell. And you know the story. At midnight, they sang and they prayed, and literally, the jail broke. The jailer got saved along with his whole household. He then tended to the wounds of Paul and Silas. The next morning, the officials realized that they had illegally beaten Roman citizens and jailed them. And that could not only cost those officials their positions, it could have gotten them prison time. So they came and escorted Paul and Silas out. Then it was on the Thessalonica. God gave amazing fruit to the preaching of the gospel. But there was also an equal and opposite reaction. Unbelieving Jews pulled together a mob and they came looking for Paul and Silas to drag them into the street and beat them to death. The believers at Thessalonica whisked Paul and Silas away and got them to a hiding place, a town called Berea. Berea is not a place that Paul would have ever chosen to go. Every place that Paul went was always a major city on Roman roads. He wanted to take the gospel to places where it would disseminate. Berea was a postcard town. It was one of those places that you only got to if you were going there. But the goal was to get Paul off the radar. Well, Paul was called to make disciples. So he's, he's preaching the gospel and, and, and they're responding. God's giving good fruit. And word gets back to Thessalonica that they found Paul. And the same group from Thessalonica launches an effort to raise up a mob at Berea to kill Paul. The brothers at Berea do what the brothers at Thessalonica do. They whisk him away, but this time they take him further. They take him all the way to the sea. They get on a boat with him and take him to Athens. Now you think, wait a minute, Athens, that's a famous city. No, not at this time it wasn't. That was about 600 years earlier. At this point in time, Athens had... Uh, a population of about 10,000. Antioch, by the way, where Paul started from, 
was a city of about 500,000. Nobody was going to look for Paul in Athens. So he was off the radar. He was safe. But God didn't call Paul to be safe. He called him to make disciples. So after being there for a little bit, he went to Corinth. Corinth was back on the radar. Corinth was a major trade town in the Roman Empire. Paul started off in his ministry uh, after Timothy and Silas joined him there, back into the synagogues, preaching the gospel. People start to respond. People start to believe. And the unbelieving Jews begin to organize against him. They try to take him to court. And lo and behold, it's snuffed out before it gets started. Before that happened, Paul was feeling the pressure. He had been beaten. He had been jailed. He had been hunted on more than one occasion by people who were intent on killing him painfully. It took a toll. Paul was faithful, but Paul was also human. In Acts 18, verse 9, we read this. Paul's at Corinth, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. No one will attack you to harm you. There's only one reason God would need to say that to Paul. He was ministering, but he felt the need to look over his shoulder to see if trouble was coming. He didn't want to be hunted again. God spoke. Paul settled down and he ministered. When the Jews tried to take him to court, the Roman proconsul, Gallio, who was only assigned to this post for about a year, he was a very influential man. This was just a passing through point. But at that moment, he was the governor of the area, and the Jews tried to bring Paul into court, and Gallio said, this has no basis here. Get out of my court. And all the efforts of the Jews was stopped right then. And Paul was able to go ahead and minister freely. One more story. A friend of mine from my Moody Bible Institute days, we graduated together. I'll call him Mike. He's pastoring a church where for a number of years... He had one man on the church board, an influential man at the church, who had his own agenda, and he opposed Mike at almost every turn. Mike was strongly impressed of the Lord. Do not take him on. Do not take matters into your own hands. Entrust him to me, the Lord said. So he prayed for this man. He prayed for his family. He sought to bless them. He refused to strive with this man at the church board meetings. 
sought to treat them well even when he was treated poorly. Eventually, the man made some poor financial decisions that cost him his wealth. Shortly after that, he made some suggestions, offered some ideas at the church board meeting that ran crossways to the other board members. They recognized that there was another motive and agenda going on behind this. Completely apart from anything Mike was doing, the board voted to remove this man from the church board. The man, realizing that his power base was gone, he and his family just decided they were going to leave the church. That was several years ago. And now the church is growing. There's a unity. There's a joy in worship and in fellowship together. Those things were very hard to come by for a number of years. God took care of his people. And if this were a different kind of service, I'd love to just open it up now, send a mic around the room and and have you share your story of how God prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies, how he anointed your head with oil, how your cup overflows, how you have seen God demonstrate his faithfulness when you did not have the answer to the situation that you faced. For David, for Dr. Patterson, for the Apostle Paul, for my friend Mike, you can see how God celebrated them, shielded them, refreshed them. It wasn't a quick or pleasant process to see the Lord's victory. But when the story was all told, they could see how God had taken care of them all the way One other lesson I'd like to highlight from this, and that's this. Being in the will of God includes times of celebration. Now, I'll tell you real honestly, I wasn't planning on going this direction when I, when I started prep, preparing for this message, but I really felt impressed to include it. In the heyday of promise keepers, Coach McCartney decided that he needed to Uh, surrendered the helm. There were some other ministries he wanted to start. And it was time to turn the leadership over to someone else. Now, there were two men who served as executive vice presidents there. Both of them were African-American. One was Raleigh Washington, who actually was my pastor for 12 years. And the other was Tom Fortson. Tom is now uh, a trustee at the Institute. Jan Moskowitz, one of the co-founders of Jews for Jesus, was a regular speaker for Promise Keepers, was heavily involved in in the leadership of the organization, and he was aware of the upcoming change. And I ran into him at a Christmas party that we were both at. We had a brief conversation. And this is how he described the two men, Raleigh Washington, Tom Fortson. He said, Raleigh Washington was wired very much the way Jan was, always looking to take the next plateau, climb the next mountain, you know, get the next victory. 
He said Tom Fortson, on the other hand, was a man who would take the time to fortify the current position before looking to move on. As Jan predicted, it was Tom who was chosen as the next president of Promise Keepers. Now, I've met people like these all through my ministry. Some believe you should burn out rather than rust out. Go pedal to the metal all the way to the pearly gates. One friend of mine said to me, I quote, I can sleep in heaven. He's not wrong. We will have time to rest in heaven. And honestly, Jesus did call us. He, he, he told us, occupy until I come. Stay meaningfully engaged in the work of advancing his kingdom until he returns or calls us home. Rusting out is not the will of God. Now, others believe we should take time to reflect on what God is doing, what he has done. Take time to celebrate the victories we've experienced. Build on them so we don't lose the ground that we've gained. Remembering is important. David seems to have found a balance between the two. Obviously, David was very engaged in life and faced many battles. But he also captured his experiences in the Psalms that he wrote. He then incorporated these into the worship life of Israel by having the psalms that he and others had written read as part of their worship services. Here's my question. How do you celebrate what the Lord has done in your life? In the life of your family, your ministry, your church? Could you write a poem? Maybe a short story? Could you compose a song about it? Maybe you could build something that would commemorate the victory. Paint a room a certain color to remember what the Lord did for you. Make a video that you can archive. Crochet, knit, sew something that has a, a tie to what God did. Take a photo and frame it and hang it on the wall. Put it as the wallpaper on your computer. The point is this. David recalled that God took time to celebrate the victories in David's life. The table, the cup, the oil. They weren't literal, of course. This is a metaphor. But David knew that remembering was part of how God worked among his people. Remember the pile of rocks that God told them to pick up when he caused the Jordan to part at flood stage so that Israel could come across into the Jordan? We told them to celebrate Passover so they wouldn't forget how God delivered them from Egypt? Or here's a strange one, the Feast of Booths. 
go out and live in shanties to remember how God kept you for 40 years in the desert. The list could go on. God required that his people remember and celebrate. Now, we remember our deliverance every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We remember. We celebrate. We celebrate with the angels when we baptize a new believer and they come up out of the water into the new life that Christ has given them. We hear their testimonies about how Jesus sought them and changed them. Have you ever been here for the Thanksgiving Eve service? If you have, raise your hand. About, oh, not, not enough of you. Okay. Here's the reason why I say it. It's not about attendance. The Thanksgiving Eve service is a time when the family of Moody Church simply gives thanks to God by sharing how God has worked in their life in the past year. It's a service like no other. It's a time when we celebrate. Psalm 23 is David's reflection on how the Lord has shepherded him through his life. And one of those reflections is, you prepare a table before me, verse 5. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Take some time this week. Even better, take some time this evening to write down how God has celebrated, shielded, and refreshed you on your journey with him. Then, Include it in your conversation with others. Start a little celebration of God's goodness in your circle of life. Let's pray. Father, we are here because of your faithfulness. We recognize that you have shielded us, you have refreshed us, you have celebrated us by how you have answered our prayers, how you have met our needs, how you have sent to us the comfort, the encouragement, the right word at the right time. And you give us opportunity as your people to celebrate your goodness together. We thank you that even in the face of a world gone wrong, where there are many enemies to the gospel, and where there is an arch enemy who has pitted himself against you and who has targeted us, that even in the presence of all of them, you prepare a table for us. You anoint our heads with oil. And our cup overflows with your goodness. And we want to take time tonight to say thank you. Remind us, Father, to remember, to reflect, to celebrate, to share with others 
how good you are. 